Like the parable of the Good Samaritan, I, I bet most of you could probably tell me the story of the prodigal son with a decent amount of accuracy. And like the Good Samaritan, it can be very easy to place ourselves as a key player in that parable pretty quickly. I mean, we can identify who the wayward son is who sows his wild oats, but eventually finds his way back home. Sounds like a lot of movies I know. And then he lives happily ever after, the end. So from that, what are the major takeaways? Well, honor your father and mother. Be content with what you have. Don't be wasteful. And make sure you bring extra snacks for the road trip. (laughs) Now, those are all solid pieces of advice. But they aren't the point of the parable. We've talked about this before, about a few things perhaps that are important to bear in mind as you approach the scriptures. Some guiding principles, if you will. Here's Here's a pro tip. When you're reading the parables, Keep this little song floating around in your head. Now, I'm not saying you should never read yourself into the story. Just don't get there too quickly. R- remember, the parables are about the kingdom of God and what our King Jesus does to ensure that we have a place in it. Now, the parable of the prodigal son, it's a classic. But it can be, admittedly, difficult to find Jesus. And we certainly know who the father is. And it doesn't take much to identify who the sinner is in this story. But there isn't a clear Christ figure. So let's go back just a bit before we dive into the meat of this parable. Go back to the beginning of Luke chapter 15. Here the gospel writer begins a triple play of parables, if you will, about things that are lost. We hear a story about a lost sheep, a lost coin, and now a son who is lost, the prodigal. And here's how Luke sets up the scene. He says, all the tax collectors and sinners were coming to Jesus to hear him. But the Pharisees and the experts in the law were complaining by saying, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Throughout Jesus' ministry and outside of Jesus' disciples, there always seemed to be two groups of people that could always be found wherever Jesus was. They were like flies to honey. And and from those two verses, you can gather who they are. We have the tax collectors and sinners in this corner, and the Pharisees and the experts in the law in this corner. Now, I think one of the great ironies of Scripture is that these two groups apparently didn't read the script, (laughs) Or, or maybe they swapped roles. You would think it would be the religious people, the experts in the law, who'd be hanging all over Jesus, right? And hanging on to every word. And it would be the unrighteous, sinful, immoral folks who would stay far away. But that's not how it plays out. It's the people you think would be least likely interested in Jesus who actually seek him out and run toward him so that they can have the life that he's giving. And it's those who you think would joyfully welcome his presence because they've studied his word and his law. But they are the ones who end up seeking him out only to put him to death. And be sure to to remember what, what Jesus said previously. Jesus says, the healthy don't need a doctor, but the sick do. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So as we think about this parable, let's keep in mind Jesus 
immediate audience. We have the unrighteous sinners and the self-righteous religious people. Both are listening intently, but for two very different purposes. Okay, so let's get in. Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he, the father, divided his property between them. This seems pretty straightforward, but there are two important things happening here that we need to look at. We all know about inheritance. Maybe you have a will or some sort of legal document drafted up that outlines what's going to happen to your stuff after you die. It wasn't much different back then. Before a father died, he would have divided his estate between his sons, the firstborn getting a double portion and the rest divided among the others. But note, what hasn't happened yet in this story? The father is still alive, and yet the younger son is demanding his portion now. So what the younger son is really saying is, Dad, you're as good as dead to me. I don't really care about you or your life or the life that you've made for me. I want now what will belong to me when you're dead so I can live my life the way I want to live it. Whew, this kid needs a lesson in the fourth commandment, doesn't he? (laughs) Totally dishonoring his father, but even worse, he wishes him dead, and he's coveting what yet isn't his. We've got all kinds of commandments being broken here, but what does the father do? Astonishingly, he gives the son what the son demands. If you dug in a little deeper, there's two ways you could think about what's happening here. Either this is a demonstration of the father's unbelievable generosity, or he's a spineless pushover. (laughs) I mean, he was certainly within his rights to put his foot down, but he didn't. Or, Or laugh his son away at the foolishness of such a request. Or, as we'll find out later, the father would have been in his right to do something a bit more drastic. Now, before we get to that, In the meantime, let's check out interesting fact number two. (laughs) Our translation of the story reads this, that the son said, Father, give me the share of property that's coming to me, and the father divided his property between them. That word property is used twice here in our translation, but it's actually two different words in the original text. And, And pointing this out adds a little more color to the story. So first the son asks his father for the Osios, the stuff that belongs to him, material possessions and wealth, tangible things. But then the Greek word also translated as property is different. The word used is bion or bion, like where we get the word biology from. Bio, bios means life. So here's how we can translate this differently. The son says, Father, give me my stuff. And the father gave him of his very life. Now, this could be understood as the father's livelihood. It it wasn't like the father had a whole bunch of stuff sitting in a barn that he was just storing up until he died to give it to his sons. No, by giving what the son demanded now, the father was going to take a hit in more ways than one. He was losing his son and losing a portion of what keeps his family and his very self alive. This father is taking a cut on many different levels. 
But the son doesn't care. He takes what he's been given and he sets off to a distant land to carve out a life of his very own, to live his life the way he wants. That's kind of familiar rhetoric for us today, isn't it? A lot of people buy into the lie that if it makes you happy, it's good. Certainly, there are a lot of good things that make us happy and bring us joy. But this son is seeking a life of leisure, of pleasure, of self-gratification. He thinks only of himself and no one else. And while living that way can certainly bring momentary happiness, it's really only sin and death masquerading as a life worth living. The parable continues. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went out and hired himself to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Now, eventually, the money is going to run out. Things won't go to plan. The people we thought were our friends will abandon us. And we'll be left to look at the life we lived and be faced with two choices. We return home, wherever that may be, or dig a deeper hole and hide in it. Check this out. In our translation, it says the son began to be in need. Take a quick look at Romans chapter 3, verse 23, which says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Interestingly, the word for to be in need and fall short are the same word. The son went out seeking his own glory, if you will, and he fell short. He fell short, certainly, of the father's glory, but he couldn't even live up to his own. He wasted what was given to him. He began to be in need. When we live for ourselves, we will always come up short and be in need. And when we find ourselves there, where will we go? Well, it seems to me that this wayward son had a chance to go back home before he did, but he chose not to. The money has run out. The famine came on. And I have to think that one of his first inclinations was to go back home. But very quickly, he dismissed that idea. Either he was too proud or too ashamed, or maybe he was both. And if we're honest, sometimes shame can put on the mask of pride. And pride is only going to lead us back into ourselves, where we will fall short once again where we will find ourselves ashamed once again. And this cycle will continue until we are nothing. This son's shame and pride led him further away from his father, so far that he hired himself out to strangers to be their servant. And as he worked and as he hungered, he longed to share a meal with pigs. And to make things worse, Not only could he not eat that food, no one gave him anything. The world that he had chosen 
to be a part of, didn't even see him as worth more than pigs. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Instead, treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. Now, if you don't know the rest of the story, and you were the dad, how would you respond in this situation? Maybe some of you are currently in the position of this father, that there is someone in your life who has wounded you deeply. And maybe they've come back or maybe they haven't, but you're in that position. Or maybe you're like the son. You're the one who has brought pain and sorrow and hurt to somebody else. Think about this. What would the father have been justified in doing in this circumstance? I'm sure you all have your own opinions of what you would have done. Listen to this. Listen to the law written down in Deuteronomy 21, 18 to 21, which says this. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him, will not listen to them, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him, bring him out to the elders of the city, at the gate of the place where he lives, and they shall say to the elders of the city, this, this our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He's a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and all Israel shall hear and fear. I mean, that's some drastic action. And the father would have had the very right to kill his son on the spot for coming home and highlighting the dishonor and the shame and the sin he brought upon the family. And as an example to the rest of the community, bring his son's life to a bitter end right then and there. But the father in the parable doesn't do that. His love and his compassion for his son is far greater. The father sees his son way off in the distance, and he drops everything, and he runs. The son, of course, comes to his dad and delivers his prepared speech, but if you notice, the father doesn't even respond. In fact, it doesn't even seem like he was listening. Instead, in joy, he cries out to his servants, bring a robe, bring a ring, put sandals on his feet, kill the fattened calf, let's party. My son was dead. And is alive. He was lost. And he's found. Hold up, though. What about justice? How can we, how can the Father, overlook the pain and the shame and the sin that this Son has brought? Now, we didn't read this portion of the parable earlier, but remember it began by saying the Father had two sons. And if you keep on reading, you'll discover that the older son, after hearing the celebration that was being thrown, and after finding out why everyone's feasting, in anger, he goes to the father and points out the injustice. And he says this, Father, I have done everything right. I have done everything you commanded. 
I've stayed with you. I've worked for you. And you've never thrown me a party like this. But this son of yours goes off and and wastes his life and he drags your name through the mud. And now you're hosting a feast for him? We can feel, we can feel that son's anger. How many of us are like this older brother who love to point out other people's sins and in doing so hold on to our own self-righteousness? I can guarantee you this older brother was not perfect by any means, but he perceived himself to be. And the father reminds him, son, everything that is mine is already yours. It's all and always has been about my grace. So now at the end of this story, remember who was listening. We have the unrighteous sinners and the self-righteous Pharisees. Who do you think received this parable as good news? And who do you think went off kicking the dirt with disgust? No, the honest truth is this parable is good news for both. It's good news for everyone. But the self-righteous, the self-righteous won't be able to receive this good news until they see that they are sinners just like the unrighteous. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And they are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. We can easily see our place in this parable. But what about Jesus? Well, Consider this. Jesus is the better older brother. Not one who complains against those who have not kept the law, but rather the one who keeps the law perfectly on our behalf and fulfills all its requirements. Jesus is the younger son, the very son of God who for a time laid aside his divinity as he did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but but became a servant. Jesus ventured out far from his home not to spend his life in reckless living or drag God's glory through the mud, but instead chose to live among reckless, sinful people and to take their sin into himself. Jesus easily could have returned home to the Father anytime he wanted, but he didn't. He dug in deeper. And for our benefit, not only did he take on our sin, but he became sin. Sin that should separate us from the Father. And Jesus Christ, in our place, cries out, My God, why have you forsaken me? The world looked at Jesus and saw him as nothing. Not even worthy as the pigs. They left him for dead. He was utterly cut off. 
His death certainly assigned to the world that sin does not go unpunished. The punishment for sin what belongs to us, but was given to someone else. And so now the son's death also reminds us, more importantly, of God's love and grace. Jesus died. He was gone, but he came back to himself. God raised him from the dead. And Jesus knew his father would welcome him home. And the son, who became a servant and gave his life, and was obedient to the Father, even to the point of death, now has been given the name that is above every other name. And he brings the feast, and he invites you to the party. He puts the robes on you and feeds you. He was dead and is alive. He lost his life in order to find you. In Christ, we die to sin, and we are made alive. We were lost and are found. What does that mean to you? How does knowledge of what Jesus has done make you feel? Historically speaking, Lutherans, we aren't really about feelings. (laughs) Maybe it's our German heritage. I don't know. We're a little more tough than tender, which isn't bad. But sometimes we have a difficult time grasping the fullness of what Christ's death means for us. What exactly Christ has done and what it really means. What does it mean to you that Christ died for you? I think we all know the answer, right? Well, he died for me because he loves me and he forgives me, and because of that, I get to go to heaven. Now, that's the right answer. But what does it really mean to you? To ask it a different way, how can we engage or interact with that fact of what Christ has done on a deeper level. I found this illustration to be helpful. Maybe you will too. If you can think back, particularly to when you were younger and maybe off somewhere with your parents or another grown-up who was looking out for you, and you got lost. Has that ever happened to you? You got separated from your parents or from that grown-up. You couldn't see them. You didn't know where you were or where they were. How did you feel? If that's happened to you, maybe those feelings are actually coming back to you right now and you're starting to get panicked and you're desperate and you're scared to death because you also get this sense, strangely so, that that this is it. This is the end. There's no hope. I'm lost. You can capture that feeling. That's, That's what sin does. Sin separates us from the Father and we are left alone afraid, hopeless, and lost. But now perhaps recall how you felt when you were reunited, when you were found. Relief, uncontrollable joy, happy tears, (laughs) a weight lifted, your body tingling back to life. This is the grace of God. God's grace lifts us up out of the pit. It brings you back to life. It works the same way in reverse for a parent who loses their child and then finds them again. And if we can tap into that feeling, we can begin to understand the father's reaction in this story. Which is exactly what happens when when even one sinner repents 
and receives the gift that Jesus gives and is covered by God's grace. They were lost, but are found. They were dead and are alive. And the Father and all the angels and all heaven rejoices. The same confidence Jesus had in his Father by doing the will of his Father, by giving his life, by coming back to life, that same confidence and hope you have. You know that you cannot stray too far. You cannot dig so deep. You cannot sin so much that the Father's love and compassion cannot find you, cannot reach you and redeem you and restore you. God the Father, through Christ the Son, runs to you. He seeks after you. He finds you. He clothes you. He feeds you. He establishes you. Though we are sinful servants of the King who fall short in every way, God calls you home. And He calls you His sons and daughters. This is the grace of the Father. This is the love of the Son. This is the power of the Spirit. Be confident that in Christ you are loved, forgiven, redeemed. And you have a home with God that is yours forever. Amen.